apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this morning, in this very important passage, we're going to look at the one-word key that really is important in every area of life. I mean, physically and spiritually and personally and collectively, and especially in the church, the Christian church. And I'm thinking of the word balance. What you're going to see in this passage, uh, Gerald, is that the very first church, the first, first church, focused on a balanced involvement in four dynamics, a Christ-centered involvement in Bible study, fellowship, worship, and prayer. And from that statement, I want to move to another statement. And it's different, but it's very much related. And I'll show you how that works in a minute. But for the last 20 years, Barna and others have been doing surveys on why Americans don't like to go to church. And there's a long list of reasons, but the top three that consistently come to the top of the, the list are these. Number one, the church talks too much about money. Every night I go to church, they want me to give money. It's all about money. That's the first reason some people don't like church. The second reason is the church might make them do something uncomfortable and embarrassing. And I'm sure when this happens, it's well-intended, but you know, a lot of churches would go, hey, we haven't seen you before. Why don't you stand up in front of the whole group of people you've never seen before and tell us how old you are? How much money you make and your social security number. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to do that. And for me, um, I, I say to a lot of our first-time visitors, it takes a lot of guts to visit a church this size. Because if you go to a, large, a bigger church, you have a sense of anonymity. You can kind of blend in. A church this size, even though we're not all staring at any one person, we stare at Scott a lot. But other than that... Uh, we, we don't really do that. I think it's a pretty friendly place, but people don't know that till they come in here and they're afraid we're going to make them jump through hoops. And a lot of times when you make them jump through hoops, you can go home and say, man, we really had a great time and welcomed our visitors. None of our visitors ever come back, but uh, we're really friendly. We make them jump through hoops. So we talk too much about money. Uh, they're afraid we're going to make them do things that will make them uncomfortable and embarrass them. And then the, the third reason is lots of fun things are on the church's don't list. <laughs> well, um, my reaction to those reasons, I don't think they're excuses, I think they're legitimate reasons, might surprise you because I would say an overemphasis on money in the church or by Christian ministers is wrong. Jesus didn't avoid the topic. He talks about money. He does. Um, and the scripture talks about money. Jesus says, uh, you can tell where your heart is by where your money goes, right? Your disposable income shows you what's really important to you. But I think a lot of times churches do overemphasize money and maybe they outbuild God's will or they use all kinds of mechanisms. And if you tithe for, you know, for a year, you'll get all, you'll make more money. And if you don't, we'll give you your money back and all these crazy things that I can't imagine the apostles doing. So there can't be an overemphasis of money. Uh, when we're focusing on gimmicks over grace and rituals over reality, I think that's wrong. And if we're doing things to make us feel like we're religious and making visitors feel uncomfortable, I don't think we should do that. And then uh, a lot of the fun things are on the don't list. Uh, you know what? A lot of Christians are more like the church lady on Saturday Night Live than Jesus, you know, and the Lord does give us lines on a highway of life as believers we follow because it will keep us out of the weeds and the barbed wire fences of life, among other things. But a lot of times Christians and churches have stricter rules than Scripture does. It's called legalism. And as harmful and as wrong as the philosophy in the 60s, if it feels good, do it. It's not a good way to live because lots of it feels good will kill you. The flip side is just as bad. Redina, telling people if it feels good, 
we got to suspect it's probably not a good thing to do. Uh, look, let me just confess something to you. I realize in the grand scheme that God has for the cosmos and for history, college football isn't that important. I'm just telling you, as a theologian, it's not that important. Uh, very minor thing. But all I can tell you is the fact that OU beat, uh, lost to OSU this year. I almost got it wrong. The fact that OSU beat OU this year in football this past season, it really, really felt good, didn't it, Joe? I mean, it, it, didn't it, Jen? I mean, that really, that was awesome, man. That was great. But here's the thing. They've been playing each other for 112 years, and we've won 18 times. So we got to really make it a point to enjoy it when it happens. So what's the relationship between the reasons people don't like church and the, the four fundamentals that we need to have a balance in? I think those kind of things, those kind of reasons people have for not liking churches could be greatly minimized, maybe even eliminated totally, if Christians and churches would have a more zeroed-in Christ-like focus and an active involvement in the things that are going to make us strongly, stronger spiritually that really matter. What are those? Bible study, fellowship, worship, and prayer. So we're going to look at those functions in the first first church and talk about how that works, hopefully, in our church and, and uh, God willing, in every church this morning from our passage. But before we jump into that passage, let's pray for our troops and our teaching, that uh, God will give us a spirit of teachability, and we're going to pray, we're going to pray for those who serve and protect us. And uh, you probably heard, but last Sunday night, uh, Jonathan and Candace welcomed a new set of twins. We had one set of twins, Lincoln and Vivian, two and a half years ago, and they're on the left. And then we've got two new ones, uh, Violet June. She's the little, she's the, she's the baby of the two, and Eloise Dot is the older sister. And they've got all the stuff out of their noses, everything but a little IV and the NICU. They were born at 32 weeks, and they're going to stay in NICU until about 36 weeks more as a precaution than anything because they're doing wonderfully. Um, Candace got released from the hospital on Thursday, but she stays in the hospital 23 hours a day so you can see the, see the kids as much as possible. And so uh, for those of you you prayed about that pregnancy, I thank you very much. And hopefully uh, for too much longer, you'll get to see Violet and Eloise uh, in person. Okay, So we're very thankful about that and uh, praise God about that. Um, Tell you what, Steve uh, Skinner, if you would lead us in prayer for our uh, teachability to Acts 2.42-47 and also for those uh, peace officers, firefighters, and military that help us to be able to enjoy this freedom of, of religion. Okay? Uh, grace over gimmicks. The uh, top seven list today is top seven signs your church has sold out to corporate sponsors. The Sunday, Sunday Bulletin is full of Walgreens coupons. That's a bad sign. Worship services begin with this announcement. Our choir selection this morning is brought to you by our good friends at McDonald's. Instead of dress shirts, the deacons wear T-shirts with shop at Walmart on the back and made with love at Red Dirt Apparel on the sleeve. Number four, the front doors of the church have Visa and MasterCard logos on them. That's a bad sign. The elders use a new Bible translation, which replaces the 12 apostles with 12 Disney characters. Henry, that's not good. The baptismal tank is full of cute jumping dolphins from SeaWorld, and the number one sign your church has sold out to corporate interests is the pastor suits have more logos on them than Dale Jr.'s race car. <laughs> Those are all signs. Okay, we're going to look at Acts 2.42, the one-word key to almost everything. We're going to look at the first, first church. And um, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you look around the fruited plain, there are all kinds of first churches. Every town in America has got a First Baptist church, seemingly, and a First United Methodist church, and a First Presbyterian church, and a First that church, and a First the other church. But we're not talking about uh, First Baptist church or the First United Methodist church. We're talking about 
the first church in church history 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, staffed by the apostles. And we're going to be able to see, put that under a microscope and see what happened and see what they focused on. Really important. Uh, the first church was not in uh, Duncan or in the United States. It was in Jerusalem, and it wasn't even in Mexico. Uh, this summer, Lord willing, will go for uh, the 23rd time or whatever it is, 24th time, to Puebla, Mexico, and will serve with Tomas Yanez Flores, who's a good Southern Baptist pastor, and his church is Iglesia Bautista Jerusalén, which translated is Jerusalem Baptist Church. I would have thought Jerusalem Baptist Church would be like in Israel, but uh, it's actually in Mexico. But the church we're looking at today in our passage is the first first church. It's the first church of church history, staffed by the apostles, and here's the way it breaks down. First, we're going to see a focus, a balance in Christ-centered functions, Bible study, fellowship, worship, and prayer. Then we're going to see God confirming his hand on the New Testament church through the apostles. Then we're going to have communion to the max. We're going to have an unusual sharing to a extraordinary degree. And then we're going to see contagious faith being lived out in the real world. Let's look at verse 42 again. As I've mentioned many times, this is really a big verse for me uh, as I think about ministry. Uh, they, who's they? Well, that would be the 12 apostles, including Matthias, who took Judas's place. Remember Acts chapter 1, they decided that. Uh, the 120, who were the 120? 120 believers in Jerusalem that were praying and anticipating what Jesus had promised, the descent of the Holy Spirit and the start of the church. And then we've got 3,000 brand new believers. Remember last week, Peter says, repent, change your mind about your sin. You got it yourself. You can't fix it. And the Savior, he's the only one who can because he died for your sins and rose again. So we've got 3,000 brand new believers the 120 and the 12 apostles in the very first church, and it wasn't called the first Baptist church, and it wasn't called the first Methodist church. It was called Jerusalem Bible Fellowship. I mean, obviously, what else would they have called the first church? That's why I've got a question mark there. But notice they focused on just a couple of things. They didn't uh, build a fellowship hall, although they could have. Fellowships don't really function. They didn't have a coffee pot, although they could have. Uh, they focused on four functions. And by the way, the word church in the New Testament never refers, never refers to a building, and certainly not to a denomination. It always refers to groups of believers. It's not building as believers. But for me, I remember in seminary realizing how strategic this statement is, thinking, wow, I mean, who, who is in charge of this church and making sure they're continually devoting themselves to four things? Well, I think you got the apostles. And the apostles had just seen the resurrected Christ, and they just received the Great Commission. And when you analyze the Great Commission, it says, make disciples of Jesus, right? And what does that look like? What did they do? Uh, what did the apostles do with and for this church? And the biblical answer is they focused on a balanced involvement in four fundamental functions, Bible study, fellowship, worship, and prayer. They were continually devoting themselves, all of them, every time they would meet, especially on the Lord's Day, on the apostles' teaching of their experiences in Christ, which later be codified in New Testament and also Old Testament prophecy about Christ, I'm sure, and other Old Testament precepts. But the apostles are teaching Scripture as they're in the process of writing New Testament Scripture, and they devoted themselves to fellowship and the breaking of bread, not just breaking of bread house to house, but the breaking of bread at the Lord's Supper, and a prayer. Now here's my list. Here are the four functions and my premises, and I believe this, if believers and churches are honestly trying to honor Jesus Christ as Lord and they have a balanced involvement in these four things, they can't get too far off. And I think when people uh, and churches spin out of control and become dysfunctional, they're not Christ-centered and or they've got an imbalance. Maybe they pick one of these things and focus on it. 
uh, I, I love teaching Bible prophecy. We're in the middle of a Wednesday night series on First and Second Thessalonians on practical prophecy. And I, I love teaching that stuff, and I believe it all is going to happen in, in the proper time in the future. But there are churches that only teach prophecy. That's all they ever teach. That's all they ever do, get together and talk about Bible prophecy. Uh, there are other churches that emphasize other of these functions, but I'm convinced the apostles devoted themselves to all four. The first first church was involved in all four. We need to be involved in all four, right? And there's the list. The apostles teaching. Can you imagine that? you got Peter, James, and John teaching Scripture and telling you their recollections of Jesus as it fit the Old Testament model for the Messiah. Fellowship. That's a very important concept. Uh, the, the New Testament Greek term, you know, Luke wrote this in Greek, and we got an English translation, but the Koine Greek, word for fellowship is the word koinonia. And koinonia just means to share or have an overlap with somebody or something, just generically. But Christian fellowship, uh, for Ken Wanzer or for uh, Gay McCormick or for Danny Pollock, is interaction between believers and Jesus that's mutually edifying. So it's not just me asking Steve if I can borrow his pickup truck. That's just me asking for a favor. That's not his fellowship. That'd be me maybe helping Steve fill his, load his pickup truck with a wedding cake. And you, you don't want me loading up wedding cakes, okay? Because I'm, I got bad vision. I'm not very strong. I might drop the wedding cake. That's pressure. You spend all week building a wedding cake and then you got to transport it. That's scary. He does that for his wife all the time. But fellowship is interaction between believers that's mutually edifying. It's got to give and a take, right? Um, the third one, the breaking of bread, with the definite article there that refers to the Lord's Supper. The early church would typically meet on Sunday nights because Sunday was a work day for the average working guy. So it would be after work on Sunday, not Sunday morning so much. They would meet and they would have scripture, singing, sharing, and supper. And at the end of a communal meal, they would do the Lord's Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. Uh and then prayers. Now, most English translations just say prayer. They're taking a Greek plural and translating it as a collective noun. But I think the plural here is not uh, collective. I think it's designed to say they're all praying. They've got some kind of setup in the church that in the structural framework of the Lord's Day meeting, they have an open sharing time and everybody prays on the spot. Probably one person leads out loud. At TBF, we call that second hour and Wednesday night prayer meeting, okay? It's built into the fabric of the church. It's not just a prayer list and pray with, it. You get, pray with, with us when you get a chance this week. Actually, sharing prayers on the fly and praying. So what does all that mean? Well, look, in, in the apostles' teaching today that would communicate the Bible study, God speaks to us. God speaks to us through his word, and he hasn't stuttered. The thing about the Bible, yeah, there are some things hard to understand, is it biblical for me to say that? In Second Peter, Peter says, hey, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in Paul's stuff, but there are some things hard to understand. That's Peter in the New Testament saying there's some stuff Paul said, Romans 9, that's hard to understand. So there's some things hard to understand in the Bible, but the main things are what? Plain things, and they get repeated a lot. Okay, All the big stuff gets repeated enough. If you want to know it, God gives you a grace apparatus for perception. You can have it. So uh, Bible study. Um, I think there's two ways Christians should relate to the Bible. I think Steve Skinner should be in the Word for himself outside of church time, and I think he should be under the Word. But here's the problem when you're under the Word, somebody like me teaching you the Bible. There's a phenomenon called spare brain time. Uh, college students do this to you all the time. Well, my mind just tends to wander. I'm sorry, Dr. McCoy, my, my mind just tends to wander. I didn't, didn't listen to that thing you said last week we're supposed to do in our speeches. Well, listen, that's not a good excuse. Everybody's mind tends to wander. You know what the phenomenon's called, spare brain time? Eric, who's really a smart guy, his brain has the capacity to process six to 800 words a minute. That's, that's the average. And so I'm going to say you're probably 805. Now, your wife's at, at least 855. Okay, she's better than you are at this. But the average brain can process six to 800 words a minute. The average English speaker speaks about 125 to 150 words a minute. 
So this excess capacity your brain has is a constant temptation to sit here and listen to Pastor Brad and think about lunch, to listen to Pastor Brad and think about playing golf, to listen to Pastor Brad and think about going to the zoo or whatever's going to happen this afternoon or whatever. And I get that. So there's a difference between hearing and listening. Hearing is a physiological thing where molecules bounce off your eardrum, go to those little bones that are designed very uniquely and send impulses to your brain. Your brain figures out what's going on. That's hearing. No work in hearing. Listening is work. It's work for everybody. And so when you're under the Word, you've got to really kind of concentrate. And I realize the trend in modern evangelicalism is not 45-minute exposition of Scripture. Uh, we want motivational speakers. We want black lights. We want trendy pastors that don't tuck their shirts in and stuff like that. And uh, you know what? My time has passed, baby. I'm going to wear a suit or a real nice golf shirt, and I'm just going to tell you what the Bible means and how it relates to your life. And that's, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. But you need to be in the Word for yourself, reading it, and you can understand it. Here's the cool thing. As we work through books of the Bible, the idea is as we finish First Thessalonians on Wednesdays, as we go through sections of Acts now, if you're listening and overcoming the temptation, Clay, to submit to spare brain time and think about lunch too much, uh, you'll be able to read through the first couple chapters of Acts and basically know what it means. And if you really want God to show you the implications of that meaning to you, that's called application, he'll show you lots of implications. You'll be amazed as you do, go to work and go to school how much what we're learning applies to what you need to be doing, decisions you're making. happens every time. So that's the first function, the apostles teaching Bible study. God speaks to us. The second function, fellowship, is us communing with other believers. And, you know, having the privilege of being here 27 years, I mean, I've been with Homer and Pam, and I've been with Debbie and Dale. I, heck, I've, been, I've known Andrew since, since his whole life. I've seen him up and down and happy and sad and great things and bad things and times when we uh, are wondering if anybody's going to show up on Sundays and other times we've got to put out extra chairs on Sundays. We go up and down and all over the place. And we've got enough of an overlap over time. It just kind of welds you together, man. And that's what you need. You don't want to, you know, one stick is easily broken while they're teaching the Boy Scouts, but many lash together. You can't break them. So we need that kind of communion that's mutually edifying if you got to tell me about my grammatical errors in my messages, I may need to hear that, but it's not necessarily fellowship. It's, you know, it's more of a corrective function. Um, the third one, the breaking of bread, is uh, the Lord's Supper, the highest form of worship. And worship goes back to the old English word, worth-ship, ascribing worth to God. And we don't just worship when we sing. We worship really any time, every time we do and think a lifestyle that's ascribing supreme worth to God through Jesus Christ. But we tend to think of singing especially. And singing does so much more than just a dry, older, middle-aged guy can do for you telling you what the Bible means because it really goes directly to your heart. And it's wonderful to have songs like we just sung that reinforce everything else we're teaching. Uh, in worship, we commune with God. And then finally, in prayer, we speak to God. We seek and submit to His will. So in the function of Bible study, God speaks to us. In the function of fellowship, we commune with other believers. In the function of worship, we commune with God. In the function of praying, we speak to God. And I think that was the key to the first first church. They had a balanced involvement in those four functions. You're not saved by showing up at a building or an assembly and doing those four functions. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But as a believer, how do you grow? What did the apostles do with the Great commission, make disciples still ringing in their ears. What did they do at their first church, Ray? You know what they did? They made sure the church, the group of believers when they assemble, focused on Bible study, fellowship, worship, and prayer. That's what they did. And that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Let's go to verse 43. Move from Christ-centered functions to divine confirmation. They were right where they're supposed to be, doing what they're supposed to do uh, by Signs and wonders. Everyone in the assembly, everyone in that group of believers kept feeling a sense of awe. This is a very unique situation. Now, my English teacher said don't say very unique because uh, unique's good enough, but I'm going to use very unique. I'm 62. I remember when uh, the older Bush got elected president, he said, 
I'm president of the United States. I'm not eating broccoli anymore. <laughs> However old he was. He was 79. I'm not going to eat broccoli. Well, I'm, I'm going to say very unique if I want to. It's a very unique situation. Only happened once. And it doesn't last very long. Because as the church gets bigger, the persecution ramps up and they all have to scatter. And the apostles end up all over the ancient world, as you know. So this is a very unique moment in time. They all sense that. Uh, if you read uh, some of the stuff that Madison wrote about the Constitutional Convention, they just sensed something special was happening here. They weren't sure the states were going to buy it. They had to sell it. Can you say Federalist Papers? But they were there at the creation, as one of them said. And this was the same kind of feeling here. They sensed this is really, really unique, really special. And God was allowing the apostles to do special kind of miracles to validate that. The fact that in the book of Acts we see a foundation for the church laid with apostolic witness and testimony and miracles doesn't mean that everybody's an apostle or everybody's supposed to do that. I differ with my charismatic brethren that this is normal to, normal to, and <laughs> speaking in tongues and I'm not charismatic. I, I don't think this is designed to be normative. It, it happened and they're letting you know it happened, but God always marks the beginning of new phases of his plan with special sign and wondrous miracles. That's what happened here. Look at verses 44 and 45. Here's the interesting part, and a lot of people jump all over this and say we all ought to be communists or socialists if we're Christians, but I don't think that is what it means here. Look at verse 44 and 45. And all those who had believed. Now, by the way, what did Peter tell them last week, Stan, to repent Metanaeo, which means to change your mind about your sin. You got it. Yourself, you can't fix it. And your Savior, he's the only one who can. And that's the same thing as believe. You can't believe in Christ without changing your mind about those things. But he tells them to repent. Luke says, those who had heard Peter's message, 3,000 brand new believers, all those who had believed, he's talking about repenting and believing is the same thing, not separate things, uh, were together. And had all things in common. In fact, they began selling property and possessions and putting them in one pot as all would have need. And uh, remember now, what was the occasion of uh, the sermon that led to 3,000 people coming to, to salvation? Why were so many people from different parts of the Mediterranean basin there? Because of the holiday Pentecost? So these people had come to Jerusalem for just a couple of weeks, and now they're going to stay for probably a couple of months and, you know, they may have left their bank card at home and their checkbook, you know. Uh, they needed some help. So a lot of these people that were at the church at the creation here are only part-timers. One of the challenges of pastoring a church in Duncan, Oklahoma, for 27 years is people come and people go. And people uh, in God's will are led to leave Duncan and go far away. And uh, a big chunk of my heart goes with them. But I think when God looks at TBF, he doesn't just see what we're doing on a given Wednesday or at a yard sale or on a mission trip or Sunday morning. I think he sees all of the expressions that have been part of this thing. And I think of my sons, Jamie in Tulsa and Jonathan in, in Edmond, as a functioning kind of uh, off, what do I want to say, spinoff of TBF and uh, so many other people. But uh, that's part of the dynamic here. I think one reason that they're doing this extraordinary sharing, communion, to support one another is because a lot of these people are out-of-towners who only brought enough funding for the holiday, and now they're going to stay for a month. They emailed their wives and said, hey, something big's happened. I'll tell you about Jesus when I get back to Crete, but that kind of thing. So that's part of it. But here's the thing, and I taught, I taught this earlier in our study of Book of Acts. In biblical narrative literature, well, let me, let me throw this one out here. Uh, the example I like to use is, well, what's the deal about one man, one woman in marriage and all that stuff? I mean, I mean, Abraham had more than one wife, and David had a bunch of wives, and it's Bible. Remember that preacher used to preach to you and say, that's Bible, that's Bible. Well, you know what? Polygamy is Bible in the sense that some of our great Old Testament heroes had multiple wives, and I mean, you wouldn't want Judah teaching Sunday school here. I mean, trust me, he did all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, you know, he's grafted into the Messiah's line. It's amazing, you know? But here's the thing. In narrative literature, in, in the historical literature of Scripture, everything that's affirmed happened. No doubt about that. 
But not everything that is described is necessarily prescribed. The fact that David had multiple wives is clearly denounced by Nathan and others. Doesn't line up with the pattern. Where do you find the didactic pattern? Because of Adam and Eve, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, make a commitment, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's, that's the pattern. That's the didactic pattern. Every single time you've got bad examples in good people getting multiplying wives, you have problems. Okay. I've been married for 42 years in a row to the same person. She's 90 miles away. She can't hear me, but she will listen to the website. So I had to be careful here. Uh, but, uh, I, I can barely handle one woman like that. So I don't know. I'm not a market in the market for, uh, more than that. But I, I will say this. Uh, the one time Debbie went with us to Puebla, one day we went out with the road stops to Kanoa and, uh, there were, uh, folks living in Kanoa that don't speak Spanish, they're native Mexicans from before the conquistadors, they're Indians. And, uh, two of the Indians, the translator told my wife, and they looked like cave women, but two of them told my wife, the translator, if anything ever happens to you, we want him. <laughs> they, they said that, and that really weirded out my wife, but, it, but it'd been so long since anybody had flirted with me. I thought it was great. You know, it's just, it was great. But my point is the fact you can read in Old Testament narrative literature about some of the great heroes of the faith that were believers in the Messiah having more than one wife at the same time is describing what they did. It's not prescribing it. It's not saying you go and do thou likewise. It's just showing you even David had a weakness and it caused problems, right? So, uh, you've got to see this in the book of Acts. A lot of the stuff in the book of Acts is unique. It's foundational. You only lay a foundation once. And so just because something's recorded doesn't necessarily mean it's prescribed. How do you know if it's prescribed? Uh, and you might say, well, golly, Brad, you're going to tell us we don't all have to put our stuff together and live out of one pot. Yeah, I'm going to tell you that. And the reason I don't think we have to do that, even though it happened here, is there's no pattern in Acts where any of the other churches do that. And when you read about the other churches in Acts, it's obvious by some of the things said, they're not all doing that. So it wasn't a pattern in the book of Acts. It's never commanded anywhere in Scripture. And when you look at the epistles, you know, Romans through Jude, they're all written. To whom are the epistles written? To churches or to leaders of churches. And it's obvious there are rich and poor and slave and free and all kinds of different uh, levels, not one big pot, everybody living off the same amount of money kind of stuff. So this is a good example of a description of something that happened at a very unique point in the first first church, but was never designed to be a pattern, certainly never commanded. And you look at church history, nobody did it, uh, with a few, very few exceptions. I guess uh, today, kibbutz, some kibbutzes in Israel, uh, uh, you had a messianic uh, Jewish kibbutz, some of them do that kind of thing. But that's not prescribed in Scripture, and, and I wouldn't suggest it. Now, here's the bottom line. Look at verses 46 through 47. I mean, this is, this is kind of like a hamburger with instead of a bun in the top and a bun in the bottom and meat in the middle, you got meat on the top and meat in the bottom and bun in the middle. Because the four functions, the balance of the four functions is critical here. And that was in verse 42. And now in verse 46 and really 47, we're going to see the effect a major evangelistic effect of the balance in the church and the balance in the Christian and Christ-centered focus on Bible study, fellowship, worship, and prayer. Verse 46 and verse 47. Day by day, not just on the Lord's Day on Sunday, they're continuing with one mind in the temple before and or after work, get together, worship in the temple, pray in the temple. It's still functioning. It's before 70 A.D. And breaking bread from house to house. The breaking of bread is Lord's Supper. Breaking bread house to house means they were sharing meals together. Now, they didn't have McDonald's back then. They didn't have fast. There was no fast food in ancient Israel. It was all slow food, which is one reason why people talk about fasting and praying. Uh, for me, if I want to pray for something really seriously, I'll just skip lunch. Because I skip lunch six days a week anyway, so it's not that big of a sacrifice. But uh, for me, if, if I'm a little hungry, I feel more intense. It's just subjective. I feel like I am more intense in prayer. But the big payoff 
for uh, fasting and praying in the ancient world was just you freed up so much time. In the ancient world, in a subsistence culture, these people spent an inordinate amount of time looking for lunch, finding lunch, killing lunch, cleaning lunch, cooking lunch, eating lunch, and cleaning up after lunch. And that was just the wife's part. You know, the husband's sitting there and saying, hurry up, you know. So when you were fasting for part of a day or a day, you've got scads of disposable time open up for you. So it just opens up time, right? But they're breaking bread from house to house, having meals together, no fast food, all slow food in the ancient world, uh, with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. It means they're still going to work, still working hard, still earning their shekel, doing a hard hour's work for a, a hard-earned shekel. They're not goofing off or waiting for the rapture. And look what happens. Here's the big payoff. The Lord was adding to their number. We've got 3,000 plus 120 plus 12, give or take. Now we're getting more people coming to faith in the Lord every day, not just on Sunday, because they're seeing a contagious faith fueled by a balanced involvement in Christ-centered Bible study, fellowship, worship, and prayer. They're actually able to go to the blacksmith shop or their, their bread shop or their farm or whatever it is and live a consistent Christian life while they're sweating and working hard and earning a living and serving people and interacting with people. They actually take their faith from the church house to the courthouse, as you'd say, or to the uh, schoolhouse kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's very important to note that these four functions we talked about are happening when the church is gathered. And we're not talking about a church building yet. We're talking about believers getting together on the Lord's Day and other times, specifically uh, for worship, Bible study, prayer, etc. But when they're scattered... That's where the evangelism comes in. Any good Southern Baptist, uh, if you told them there are four functions of the church, and you say, well, they say, what are they? You say, Bible study, fellowship, worship, and prayer. I grew up Southern Baptist, so I know they properly really emphasize evangelism, and I love that about them. But if you said, hey, the four functions of the church are Bible study, fellowship, worship, and prayer, they're going to say, where is evangelism? That's got to be right at the top. That's the whole thing, right? And I'd say, yeah, but it's interesting when Luke describes how this works, he realized when the church is gathered, you have mainly believers, okay? The focus should be edification of believers. What do you do to edify believers? You focus on Bible study. How come? Because that's how God talks to us. Fellowship, so we can commune with one another. Worship, we commune collectively with God. And prayers, we speak to God. So we do that in a balanced way, Christ-centered, of course. And that causes us to flourish in our faith, even if you're baseball team loses a doubleheader and you're the coach or you got bad news at work or you had a health crisis this week, you can actually stay stable and actually get above your current crisis and stay ahead of it in that sense. And then you go to work or the grocery store or you take part in Link One Mentoring or Spokes for Hope or Gabriel's House or Christian Family Counseling Center or Chisholm Trail Soccer Association, or Kiwanis Club, or Duncan Little Theater. You, you shone your light, not just when we saw you sing so beautifully, but all those practices you showed up for, right? That's where the hard work is, right? Performing is the fun part. Everybody wants to say, I want to do that. Well, you don't have her talent, number one. <laughs> and she didn't just show up and do that. And she took her whole life to get the where her pipes were in the condition she, they're in. Plus, it took six or... Eight weeks of, it's like going to the salt mine every night, right? And going over those songs, you know, honey, it's great. But do uh, you, you see the point? They're doing four things when they get together. And as a result, they're able to live, not just the preacher. This isn't just the preacher telling you, drag your unsaved people, to ch- friends to church, and I'll tell them about Jesus. Yeah, we'll do that. We always share the gospel up here. But the, the New Testament paradigm never says, uh, we should call unbelievers to come to the church. It says we should call the church to go out into the world, right? So, of course, we do that. And that's that's what's happening here. Now, who's in charge? Of, of course, the leaders of this church may may have misunderstood the importance of evangelism, right? Who were the leaders of this first, first church? The apostles. Eleven or twelve of them get killed for this thing. And then John dies of his old age after being put on a Roman prison island. So they all took this very seriously. By the way, how did these guys pull this off? They were too frightened to stand with Jesus after his arrest. And now in the same city where they lynched Jesus, 
They've got 3,000 plus. You can't have 3,000 people get together in the temple courtyard on, the, on Sundays and have the authorities not notice that. The same people that killed Jesus. Why would these guys do this? They went from fearful to fearless. How come? I think because of that. That's the reason. These guys had seen Jesus resurrected. And their interaction over a 40-day period with the resurrected Jesus totally blew their categories, totally changed everything. Christianity is not just another religion. It's not a philosophy of life. It's out-of-this-world, mind-blowing truth, and it centers on the resurrected Christ. So let me ask you to take this to heart this morning. I'm convinced, for me as a pastor, thinking about how churches should work, uh, we got to focus on four things. One reason I came here 27 years ago was because it was a big mega church, and they said, look, all you got to do is just preach a couple of messages. You don't have to set up chairs or take out diapers or anything like that, and everybody will tell you how great you are, and it's going to be wonderful, and you make a lot of money and get rich and famous. And I, I bought that, and they lied to me. It didn't work out. <laughs> no, the reason we came is because by cracky, that's, some, that's what uh, Ernest Tubb used to say, these people seem to really love the Lord Jesus, and they really understand somebody ought to teach the Bible from the pulpit. That's Bible study, and they have some really cool fellowship and interaction with one another, right? And they believe in worshiping the Lord, and they pray. I mean, they've got a structural thing called sharing time where after the first mess, our message, you get together in small groups, and you talk about the message, and how it relates to your life, and you talk about things that make you happy and sad and you want people to pray about it, and they pray for it on the spot. I mean, good night. That sounds a lot like that. You know, that's that's what attracted us, you know. And the huge buildings, they destroyed and built these little buildings later, but uh, no. um, it was all good because that's what they were doing. So I, I'm convinced the key to the first church, which was a balanced Christ-centered involvement in Bible study, fellowship, worship, and prayer, is the key for every church. And I think we get in trouble individually or collectively if we're not Christ-centered and, and balanced in those in those functions. Now realize those functions are to help believers grow in their faith. To get on the Christian train, you start with the resurrected Jesus and realize that he died for a purpose. And the purpose is because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. If this is me and this is God, God's perfect, and here I am and I got sin all over me. And you know what? I don't just break God's rules. At my worst, I break my own standards, you know? And even though God loves me, my sin gets between me and God. All the other world religions say, well, just kind of subvert all of that and do the best you can to climb up a ladder. And if you get high enough, we might take you, depending on how they define God, heaven, and sin. It's only the Bible that gets real with sin. Sin is an issue. God, as infinitely holy, uh, is offended by our sin, and we owe him a moral debt because of our sin. We can't pay. But God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. He enters time-space as the God-man. He takes on our sin and pays for it as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice on the cross. He died for our sins, and then he rose again. Why is that important? Well, you know, the resurrection of Christ doesn't just prove the omnipotence of God. It's a function of that, sure. But it validates the saving virtue of Jesus' death. A dead Savior, Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, can't get you to heaven. The resurrected Savior is the only one who can, right? Um, but to the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness, Romans 4, uh, 6. Uh, and uh, that's not right. Romans 5, 8. Um, can't remember that. What verse is that? <laughs> to the one who does not work, but it's, it's Romans 4, 6, I think. I'll look it up later. Um, but I know John three sixteen. And it says, uh, I think I remember that one. God, the Father, the author of the plan of salvation, loved the world full of cute little people like us that break our own standards plus God's all the time. God, the Father, loved the world so much he gave his son, the active agent of the plan of salvation. What did his son do for you, Colin? He lived a perfect life. He obeyed the law for you. 
died to pay for your sin debt and rose again to validate it, uh, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So uh, this unique kind of communion is uh, something we can have a taste of in any local church that's balanced and Christ-centered. And I think we, we enjoy that quite often here, and we should never take that for granted. But let me uh, close this way. Uh, for those of you who have received Christ, you know what? I think balance is so important in so many areas of life. I mean, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to hit golf balls again, and balance is a big problem in, in, in hitting golf balls straight and being able to find it. In most sports, balance is a big issue. The older I get, the more I realize that, you know, you, you hear about older people falling and breaking a hip, but and that only happens 50% of the time. What happens a lot of times is people break their hip and then they fall because uh, we have, you know, weak bone structure, but part of that is we kind of get out of balance and put all kind of torque on our joints that they're not really designed to, to handle. So balance is very important, especially in the church. Um, so let me end with two questions for you. Uh, what are the four fundamental functions? Do you know what they are? Let's do them in order. Bible study, apostles teaching, right? Fellowship, interaction between believers, mutually fine. The breaking of bread, Lord's Supper slash worship, and prayers. And I would say, you know what? If if you if you're a TBF that comes to uh, worship time in first hour, you're getting a lot of worship. You're getting a lot of Bible study, but you're not getting a lot of prayer in the sense that you hear a couple of people pray out loud. And even when they're praying out loud, I think you ought to be praying silently. But when you look at the way we're trying to structure this thing, the full Sunday gamut and Wednesday night, we give you every week all four of those things and a pretty big dose. So I think if you want to be uh, balanced spiritually, you need to take advantage of those kind of things. But you need to know what they are first. Are we committed to a balanced involvement in that? Occasionally, I grew up in a church culture where they'd go, uh, uh, next week is going to be Bible study week. And I always thought, what do we study all the other weeks around here? You know, uh, Next week's going to be prayer week. Uh, we only pray once a year? I mean, what's the deal? That's only one out of 52 weeks. I mean, we're going to pray all the time, right? So watch out for that. I think you want a balanced involvement. It's like anything else. Good nutrition, let's say you're out of shape. And for one whole day, you eat a perfectly nutritious, healthy, clean diet. Are you good? You, that's the first step in a long journey, right? It's, it's one step after another. Same thing in, in spiritual health and vitality, okay? So I hope uh, if you kind of wonder uh, what TBF's all about, uh, I'm just the pastor here, the current pastor, sees... 42 in this whole passage is very uh, seminal in my mind as to what we're trying to do. Different culture. We don't have apostles doing signs and wonders, but we do see a lot of miracles around here, don't we? Uh, I'd love to have the gift of healing. If I had the gift of healing, if, if somebody really had the gift of healing like the apostles had it, all I would say is I'll meet you at Duncan Regional Hospital this afternoon after lunch, and let's just clean it out. They never do that. The guy on television, they want you to send money because he gets the lady to get out of the wheelchair and crawl across the stage. Guess what? Some of those people walk in with a cane, and one of the helpers at the door for the minister puts them in a wheelchair. They didn't come in a wheelchair. They're having trouble walking with a cane. They put them in a wheelchair. Then you're looking at 5,000 people. Adrenaline kicks in. Half of them aren't listening because it's spare brain time. That's a different thing. But of the five, the two, you know, half of them that are listening, uh, they get enough adrenaline, they can get up and walk across the stage for 30 seconds. Everybody thinks it's a miracle. If we're, if we got apostolic signs and wonders, let's, let's clean out Duncan Regional for a start and go to MD Anderson next. Let's, let's do that. I'd love to do that. But I don't think the book of Acts is saying that's what's going to happen every generation. The apostles don't spend a huge amount of time doing medical healing miracles. They do some as a strategic calling card, right? But it's, it's more fundamental than that. The key is the spiritual dynamics and a balance in those fundamental functions, okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to realize you're speaking to us, and a lot of this sounds really familiar, I think, to most of us. This is really kind of what we're trying to do uh, intentionally, but we don't do it perfectly, and I'm sure we can improve in every area. And so help us to see where we can do that. But help all of us realize that's kind of what we're trying to do, and I think most churches 
are trying to do that. They may not exactly describe it quite that distinctly, but that's basically what we're trying to do. And we thank you for this pattern, which is repeated in the book of Acts, which is repeated in the epistles, commanded all over the place for all four of these functions. This is clearly what you want us to do because it's good for us. It's like the four food groups are good for us. Father, I do pray for anyone here this morning who's not, uh, from the depth of their heart, trusted Jesus Christ alone for their personal salvation. I pray your Holy Spirit might convict them of sin. They break their own standards, much less yours under pressure when they're selfish enough, and we all can do that and do it all the time. Uh, Of righteousness, they need it. We can't manufacture it in judgment. It's coming. But where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And he made him who knew no sin to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Against the black background of our uh, depravity at our worst, uh, you call us to look at the cross and your holiness with eyes of grace, realizing that through Christ you've covered our sin debt and you're happy and, and full of joy to offer salvation to all who receive it through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You can. I believe you died for my sins and rose again, and I want you to. I trust in you and you alone. I pray you might make this the day of salvation. For those of us who are believers, and especially those of us who are uh, plugged into TBF, help us to realize that we should not just be recipients on the Bible study, fellowship, worship, and prayer continuum. We could be contributors Contributors in sharing time, contributors during the coffee breaks, contributors doing the, the a lot of the different activities we do that highlight one or more of these things and help us to appreciate the opportunity not just to receive but to give. Uh, we thank you for the power of the word to transform our categories. Help us to be committed or recommitted uh, to this kind of dynamic in the church and in our Christian life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.